Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening didn't teach yesterday so on the weeks where I only have one where I only teach once sometimes I get lazy right and I'll just give an old talk which is fine I mean I generally don't recycle anything from the last year I'll go back two or three years find something and polish it off but I didn't want to do that this time I thought fuck it I'll just give a new talk anyway because I have that kind of I get bored pretty quickly and want to do something new and like to keep the brain working by, you know, doing more research, more reflection. That can be good and can be bad. If you're a music fan, when artists have to do something new all the time, it can be a little bit irritating, right? A lot of people were fans of... uh, Radiohead's OK Computer, and then they followed it up with like a bunch of really dreary albums after that, and then nobody really wanted to listen to it. I'm not a big Radiohead fan, but I, and I'm not comparing myself, God forbid, to Radiohead, because <laughs> I don't have anything in common with them, but I just, sometimes just doing new things for the sake of new things is not so great. <sighs> I have no idea where I go. <laughs> but sometimes it's OK, you know, Keeps it fresh for you, keeps it fresh for me. So we'll see. I threw this together last night. Hopefully some of it will make sense. So I already had the pages out of order, so that would have definitely not made sense. Tonight's talk is on a key Buddhist theme, also a key theme in uh, philosophy and psychology, which is basically um, what does it mean to perceive our life, our experience in the world with less delusion than is common to our mental functioning. Now you'll notice I'm taking for granted that there is always a level of delusion and that's without any doubt. I mean, first of all, uh, the brain is completely enclosed. It has no direct contact with the outside world, nor even with sensory input. Everything you've ever experienced in your life is a representation. So if you have a pain, if somebody pokes you or you stub a toe, the C nerve fibers go up to the insula, which goes, I mean, not to the insula, it goes first to the thalamus, which then wires it to the somatosensory, and it creates the best guess for what the pain should have felt like, and then that's what you feel. There's no actual direct experience of the actual tissue damage that you experience. You experience a representation. Interestingly enough, uh, in the optical nerve, only takes in one-seventh of the actual amount of data the occipital lobe passes on to the frontal cortex. In other words, your brain creates six Sevenths, I don't know what that is, like 87% of all the visual you see at any given moment. Only roughly 13% is actually based on actual stimuli that's going into the optic nerve. The other 87% of the visual field is actually created by 
expectations and memories and just best guesses. As the psychologist and Buddhist Rick Hansen says, we live in a simulacrum that's just close enough to the real thing that we don't bump into the furniture all the time. But we all live in essentially a, uh, a representation of the world and of our physiological experience. That said, though, some of us obviously, as you know well, live in greater states of delusion and misrepresentation of the world than others. And sometimes in our life, we experience ourselves as being less accurate in our appraisal of what's going on. Sometimes, for instance, somebody says something that's absolutely benign without any intent and we mistake it to be an attack or a criticism and we respond and then we find out that uh, they certainly didn't mean it that, me that way and so we realize that something distorted our perception led to a preconception, as it was, of what's going on that got in the way of our accurate appraisal of what's going on. So I'm going to talk a little bit about what leads to those distortions, cognitive distortions, to use the uh, psychological term, and what diminishes our distortions of uh, our experience and the role that spiritual practice, especially meditation, plays in portraying the world with a greater degree of accuracy. The earliest Buddhist suttas attributed to the Buddha, this was a key theme. It was called Yathabhuta Nana Dasana, which means to see the world in accordance with reality. In other words, to the role of spiritual practice was to try to see or experience life with the least amount of clouding, unnecessary fear or aggression, self-centered distortion. Those are the three big ones, the three poisons the Buddha said. We tend to needlessly see danger uh, where there is none. We tend to needlessly see things as more attractive, as if, if I uh, consume this product or date this individual, then I will be happy forever. So that's uh, two of the three. And then the third is we tend to take everything that happens in life personally, uh, when very often much of our experience is not personal. It's universal, has nothing to do with us. So let's break it down. The human brain or mental uh, faculty is very susceptible to something called priming. What's priming? Well. Priming is an implicit, that means unconscious memory effect. And what it means is whenever you're exposed to stimuli, uh, that stimuli will influence everything that you see subsequently in the near future. I'll give you a very basic example. If I say to you, while I go clean up, I'm going to give you a word puzzle. It's S blank blank P. While I'm cleaning up, fill in the blanks. Well, you will probably fill it in as S-O-A-P, soap. But if I said, while I'm getting something to eat, fill in the blanks, you actually would have filled it in as S-O-U-P, soup. Because the words I said, cleaning up or getting something to eat, primed 
your response. Priming is pretty much everywhere. In fact, uh, in marketing and uh, in advertising, it's a big deal, and it's certainly everywhere in our capitalist society. Um, studies have shown if you play Spanish music in a liquor store, people will actually buy Spanish wines. But if you play French music, people will buy French wines. And if you ask them, why did you buy the wine that you chose, nobody will say, well, it was because the music was Spanish. I figured I might as well buy a Spanish wine. Um, a great example of priming is if you give people a, a crossword puzzle to fill out, and the solutions all involve words like gray hair, Florida, retirement, uh, aging, and you time them then after they take the test, they will walk down the hallway back to the exit room three times slower than if the answers to the puzzle were youth, vitality, vigor, uh, babies, and so forth. Again, nobody knows why they're walking faster or slower. We just do it because we've been primed. Now that's doing that's happening all the time in the brain. The reason is very simple. It's natural selection. Things that we have seen and experienced before, we prefer than the unknown. It's in our survival interest. If you passed by a bush 5,000 times, you reach your hand in it for a berry, and you didn't get bit by a snake, you will prefer to hunt for berries in that bush than in another area where you haven't. It's simply a matter of survival. So the brain, through feelings, which are unconscious physiological messages, tells us or urges us to gravitate towards one solution or one behavior and to avoid another. So, for example, if when we were filling out the word puzzle with soap after I primed you with cleaning, if you first thought soup, your body would have created a subtle sense of tension, all this unconscious. When you thought of soap, S-O-A-P, on the other hand, your body would have relaxed. The feelings would have become positive, and that would have encouraged you to fill in the word puzzle, S-O-A-P. Most of the priming that we experience as adults is involves unconscious what psychologists called somatic markers, unconscious physiological tensions, which impel us to make decisions based on previous life experiences. So, for example, if I ask you, what would you like to eat, a grilled cheese sandwich or a tofu scramble? <laughs> we have a dire restaurant tonight, but uh, those are your choices. As you think about each, you will come up with a choice. The choice will not be actually based on any logical faculties. You'll, think, you'll simply think of both one at a time, and the one that creates the least physiological tension, you'll choose. That's how it works. If you'd like to know more about it, the Nobel Prize winning work, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow by Kahneman, goes into all of the ways that we humans believe that we're making conscious choices, but in fact, almost all of the processes are done by what's called fast 
heuristics or unconscious feelings. So priming and implicit memory are omnipresent. They're everywhere. But they're even more so than just the obvious examples I've given. Any time in your life when you've had a negative experience, a negative emotional experience such as a social humiliation or an interpersonal rejection, you get dumped or you do something in front of a group of people, your amygdala records all of the sensations that are present and throughout life, you're, you, have a, uh, you have a capability called uh, neuroception. Unconsciously, you're scanning the world. And if you come across any external stimuli or any situation that reminds you of that wounding experience, it will create negative feelings that will encourage you to withdraw. Negative Tension in the vagal vagus nerve, which runs down the front of the body, which is associated with the sympathetic nervous system, is essentially the message we all get that tells us to get away, to stop, to disconnect, to withdraw. On the other hand, if you have a positive experience in life, you meet somebody at a certain event, you uh, associate a certain place with... Uh, having a wonderful uh, set of uh, events in your life, then when you encounter that stimuli again, your body will give you positive feelings that will encourage you to choose the same vacation location or the same place to travel or the same, some people watch the same movie over and over again because they have such a positive feeling every time the choice comes up. So uh, this observation was stunningly made by the Buddha, the, uh, the, the massive role that unconscious feelings plays in our decision-making. He, in fact, the Buddha said, before all of our thinking, before any choice we ever make, before any behavior we ever take, there is what he calls feeling or Vedana. And from feeling, our thinking and our behaviors and our choices generally flow. And the Buddha said the ability to essentially dampen extremely strong sensations, which not only impel us to approach, but they also impel us to consume or acquire or get something. It makes things seem better than they are. And also the negative Vedana, which sometimes makes really harmless situations like being asked to give a talk in front of people or whatever seem more dangerous than they are. So the Buddha talked about the importance of learning how to essentially dampen down feelings so we can see things as they are without the strong unconscious feelings telling us to run, get away, or to get more so that we can actually perceive the world as it is. Antonio Damasio, who's probably one of the most important neuroscientists of our era, wrote a book called Descartes' Era, Error, 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 in which he noted that all decisions, all choices involve the recognition of what he calls somatic markers or feelings, physiological tightening and relaxation in the body, the throat, the chest, the belly. 
he went so far as to do studies with people who had lesions in an area in the insula and the orbital frontal which made them incapable of actually registering their feelings and those people could not make decisions. They would go back and forth between choices trying to figure out, come up with the most reasonable choice, but they never could actually make a choice. So the active part of your brain that's making decisions is not the pros and cons list. That's something that the left hemisphere adds on to justify the emotional choices that are being made. So if we want to change the behaviors and choices that we make in life, especially romantic choices and uh, work choices, it's less about getting more information and it's more about learning how to essentially dampen the unconscious primers in the body that are goading us forward. Now, it so happens that meditation is probably the most effective way you can do this. Studies show that people who meditate, and this is based on Sarah Lazar's work at Harvard and others, if you meditate roughly 20 minutes a day, which is probably a big ask for many people, but it's doable. Um, I've certainly been doing it for 30 years, and look at me. Uh, but if you do it, the size of your amygdala will shrink, which is good news, because the amygdala is the fear center of the brain, which is the part of the brain that actually amplifies those feelings and makes them much stronger and makes slight challenges seem terrifying. Like, for instance, uh, asking somebody for help or stating our needs or drawing boundaries in a relationship, all of these things which in the past might have led to some uncomfortable situations with our parents, these are the skills we have to develop in adult life to manage relationships. All of them will create gut feelings that are uncomfortable. So the key is to switch or at least dampen the alarm system in the brain that tells us that we're gonna die if we do something interpersonally that in the past has caused some difficulty. To say the very least, studies show that people who meditate far more than uh, 20 minutes a day literally changes in very many ways the way they experience the world, not just in the diminution of the amygdala, but the cingulate that allows people to pay sustained attention and to get more external stimuli as they view experience grows far greater. This is why when people go on retreats that are extended for a week or two weeks, the colors, the sensations, the experience of the world seems far more vibrant. There's far less emotional reaction and there's far more it's, it, at times it's a bit like you're an acid trip because when you take acid I haven't taken acid in 30 years, but I know the mechanism. Uh, it reduces the gating in your thalamus, which heightens all of the sensations. And that's exactly what meditation does, because it reduces the feelings. It allows you to stay present with the stimuli longer, so you take in more information before you make a decision in life.
The Buddha said that he dwelled in emptiness in the last years of his life, emptiness being shunyata. And emptiness actually, it turns out, has a great deal to do with seeing the world as it really is. It sounds odd, but give it a shot. I'll try my best to explain it. In, in Buddhist Dharma, emptiness actually refers to three kinds of emptiness. It doesn't mean that outside of you, people or objects are empty. It doesn't mean any of that. It simply means a mind that has been emptied of one, preconceptions, what the Buddha calls sons, has been emptied of stress. That's the gut feelings we were talking about. And three, has been emptied of the third thing that causes the most distortion in our life, which is self-centered ideation. The belief that almost all of our experience has something to do with my core identity, my core self, that there's something about me creates all the abandonments, the struggles, the benefits, the good and the bad, that something about me is to blame or is causative in my life. This tendency to take everything personally creates a sense that there's this lasting self that defines us. And first of all, it's worth knowing that there is no such thing as a lasting self. At any given moment, we all have an identity. Right now, you have an identity. You're either relaxed or agitated, tired or filled with energy. You might be optimistic, pessimistic, happy or sad. You have different moods, different thoughts, different feelings all going on. But guess what? If we took a snapshot of you right now and then took a snapshot of you three days from now, the feelings, the emotions, the thoughts, the body sensations, everything would be substantially different. Essentially, uh, the mind is a bit like a river. We can all point to where the river is. That's our mental experience. But at any given time, sometimes the river is cloudy, cold, warm, filled with debris. Sometimes it's foamy, sometimes it's not. You get the idea. And that's what our mental experience is like. This is, of course, very, very old news in neuroscience. There's no part of the brain that could create a constant sense of self or identity, even if we wanted to have something that was always present from birth until who we are right now. There's absolutely no part of the brain that's always firing. Maybe the thalamus, but that would not be capable of creating a you. It's simply a filter that ports out information. Furthermore, uh, all there's so many reams and reams of clinical studies that show that our sense of who we are changes depending on the circumstance that we're in. A classic example is Put somebody in a room with a stranger. Now, if that stranger is, and especially put that person in a room where they believe they're going for a job interview, and put them in the room with a stranger that looks like John Hamm, who's completely dressed up, that looks perfect, and ask that person right after they take the interview to appraise their likelihood and their future and 
who, what they can expect of themselves and what their strengths are, and almost every appraisal will come out negative. Why? Because they're comparing themselves with John Hamm. Of course, I'm just using John Hamm. Think of your own you know, favorite example. On the other hand, if you sat yourself in a room with somebody who looked like me, you probably would come out endlessly optimistic and filled with robust ideas about who you are and your opportunities and where you're heading in life and so forth. And Anyway, uh, if you'd like to know more of the numerous clinical studies that reveal just how plastic and variable our sense of identity is, there's a wonderful book by Bruce Hood called The Self-Delusion, which I absolutely loved. It's a classic. It's just a, a lot of fun, and it goes through all the different uh, clinical studies that show um, we don't have a lasting or even very consistent sense of identity. But we do like to believe that we have a personality or a self, and it's largely a construction of the left brain, and it covers up a lot of mechanisms that are all unconscious, and it makes it seem as if there's one thing making the decision. For example, if you ask me, do I prefer to have a piece of spearmint or bubblegum? I would answer, I know I like bubblegum, right? I don't know why I like bubblegum. I don't know what's creating the answer. In fact, what's creating the answer is all those unconscious primings we talked about in the past, and they're going through all my experiences where I enjoyed, uh, I associated bubblegum with positive experiences. And I'll answer bubblegum. I can't actually, because those circuits are so fast and so unconscious, I have no idea how I came up with the answer. So I like to believe that myself did, my identity did. But in fact, it was just a lot of old, buried emotional memories that created it. And... The self, on the other hand, while it can build sometimes a feeling of resilience if our story of who we are is that I'm strong, I bounce back, I'm a survivor, well, great. But most of the time, studies show that when we fire off the default mode network of the brain, which is where we host our sense of identity, almost invariably, guess what? Our thoughts go negative. The default mode network, which is essentially this pipeline from the posterior cingulate to the left ventral uh, medial prefrontal cortex. It's essentially what happens when we don't have a task or anything that occupies us. And when we feel that we can relax and not pay attention to the world around us, the default mode network flips on and it starts firing up stories about what's happened to me, what other people think about me, what's going to happen to me in the future. It starts spontaneously uh, guessing a lot. And in many clinical studies, including the landmark one with a, called A Wandering Mind is an Unhappy Mind by Killingsworth and Gilbert at Harvard, again, uh, found that when we think about ourselves, guess what? We're fucking miserable. It might sound out, start out good, but that's just the bait and switch. Sooner or later, the default mode network, because it's wired to the fear center of the brain, the amygdala, and all the most negative experiences that have happened to us get five times the neural weight, 
over the positive, that's called uh, negativity bias, the more you think about yourself, the more you're going to become sad, depressed, and uh, uh, essentially pessimistic. So, if you don't want to fall into those cognitive distortions, what we've got to do is when your brain is resting and not involved in an external task, we have to train it to not simply switch on the default mode network. Now, how do you think we do that? I'm going to give you a guess. Meditation. Absolutely right. When you meditate, not switching on the default mode. You're actually keeping a task in mind, but the task isn't external. You're not focusing on an external event most of the time. You're simply focusing on yourself breathing or the feeling states or the moods that are going on. So you're training your mind when you don't have a lot going on to not get caught up in self-centered thought. Now, this doesn't mean you're not thinking. You can still think a lot. You can make... Uh, you can work on problems, you can be creative, you can make art, you can do all kinds of things while you're not switching on the default mode network of your brain. The default mode network, though, when it switches on, when there's no task going on, and when you feed it a little bit of me, then you're going to wind up getting stressed, and you'll start taking everything that happens to you personally. Now, finally, the sense of self or identity that distorts so much of our experience is also undermined by meditation because in mindfulness, we're actually paying attention to the underlying physiological sensations that comprise our mental experience. We're paying attention not just to body sensations, but to feeling states, to moods, all as they are arising and passing and changing. The more you do that, the more it undermines the sense that there's this lasting core identity that defines you. The more you undermine that, the less likely you are after a setback or a rejection or a disappointment in life to sit and take this experience as some kind of global indicative statement about your likelihood of finding happiness, love, uh, security, and success in the world. You'll simply just take it as a setback. So, in summary, if you want to see the world with less physiological priming, if you want to be less primed by cultural distortions, I didn't even talk about those, those distortions that tell us that people who are busy are good and people who are not busy are slackers, those cultural primings that tell us that normalize men being decisive and lone rebels and punish men for building consensus and for showing sadness, and on the other hand, show women in cultural myths and misogynistic depictions of always building consensus and being caregivers and always punish them for being decisive and being able to be rebellious. If we want to free ourselves of those cultural primings, which are also influencing us through gut feelings, this is the work. This is the work. Switching off the amygdala that 
sends us all those messages that are so often hyperinflated that tell us that certain situations are scarier or more dangerous than they really are, or other situations are more promising and uh, more fulfilling than they actually are. Strongest way to reduce the preconceptions and cultural biases and primings and past experiences that push us around to reduce their influences to maintain awareness of how we feel. Bring awareness to interoception and maintain it. And now we're going to actually try to uh, deprime our brains a little bit, switch off the cultural and unconscious biases, allow us to see things for the way they really are. So find a really super comfortable position. So closing the eyes, what we're going to start by doing is just trying to land in this moment. What that simply means is coming to a complete stop, both physically, which is pretty easy. We do that quite frequently. We sit down, we stop fidgeting and moving and looking around. What's more difficult, though, is to stop psychically, which means that mind that jumps about from one thought to another, planning, remembering various events of the day, and in other words, abandoning the present experience for um, mental content that represents experiences that are not present at all. And that's essentially as well where the default mode network which we talked about which creates so much stress starts in on us. So first we want to come to that physical stop which just involves taking a quick scan of the body and relaxing the various areas. So let's start by taking in a nice full in-breath, like you're smelling a scented candle, and then breathing out the candle. Now as we do this next breath, let's lift on the in-breath the shoulders up, doing that full in-breath, and then with the out-breath through the mouth, blowing out the candle, dropping the shoulders. And if it feels right for you, gently pull your shoulders a little back, like you're opening your chest. That just makes it easier to receive the breath. And when your chest is open, you're already beginning that process of reducing the physiological priming. 
Now let's do another breath and pulling in the belly as tight as you want. And then breathing out the tightness, releasing the tightness, just nice round, soft belly, and just see if you can receive the breath into that belly. And for the third in breath, just tighten any muscles around the body that feel like they could use it. It could be the muscles in your face, the jaw, the forehead, the palms, the buttocks, the toes, the heels, anything you want. Tighten and then breathe out, relax. And throughout the meditation, just whenever it feels like there's this sudden underlying undercurrent of movement in the mind or anxiousness, the first place to start is just scan the body, find the area that's tightest, breathe in, tighten that area even more, and then breathe out and relax it. So much of mental flurrying, left brain stuff, is trying to explain why the body, which is controlled by the right brain and unconscious processes, is becoming reactive. Now the second part of landing is the mental part. When we reach a place in life that's special, we not only relax into it, we relax when we're at the beach or the park or we're on the couch after a long day's work. But we also, when we reach someplace sacred, we set an intention to not pick up any thoughts about anything that's not present right now. It's just a willingness to put aside the planning and the remembering, the recounting, and just relax into life as it is. In order to let go of plans and fantasies about other situations and ruminations, it's useful to give the mind a task. So there's many available. We could, one, listen to all the sounds that are rising and passing, but not in a way that creates more emotional responses. Listening to the sounds like they're an ambient soundtrack, like you're listening to just sonic events without any 
need to visualize what's creating. So the horns and honks no longer sound aggravating, they sound like notes in a musical score. Feeling the contact sensations you're making with your hands on your legs, your buttocks and sit bones on the cushion, clothing on your body. The closed eye visuals, which are lights flickering behind your eyelids. Abstract visual flourishes, and most obviously, the sensation of your body breathing like a river swelling and subsiding your chest and belly, bringing. Creating the causes that bring in the breath and then the body movements that release the breath. Trying not to think of breathing as pulling in and pushing out, but allowing in the breath by expanding first the belly and the chest and then releasing. by deflating the chest and the belly. And then let go and just allow the body to breathe naturally without any control and just sit back and observe all the sensations that are present. And what will happen is sooner or later the default mode will kick on and try to lure you away with a thought about something that happened with another individual, about an upcoming event. Been conditioned to seek our attention whenever we close our eyes or disconnect from the visual world. So our job is just to keep it at bay, just to keep a task going, a relaxing, peaceful task. And if you do pick up one of those thoughts, no worries. Just gently release it and relax back into all the sensations that are actually happening. No judgment, no frustration. Just receiving life as it is right now.
So now we're going to move into the second part of the meditation. I'd like you to take a quick emotional snapshot of how you're feeling right now. An emotional snapshot is simply noting how you feel and what mood the mind is in. (coughs) So the feelings first, noting if there's any facial expression that denotes a feeling. Happiness often has an upturned face, uh, ease in the muscles, uh, lift in the eyebrows, stress, sadness, the varying degrees change the position of the muscles around the mouth, the muscles around the eyes. Anger sometimes will clench the jaw. The physical components in the body of feelings as well, the fear which might tighten the belly, the sadness which might contract the chest muscles, feelings of powerlessness, being unseen, might create a tightness in the throat, and so forth. On the other hand, feelings of optimism and joy have an openness in the chest, ease in the belly, the shoulders gently pulled back and released. So that's how you're feeling. And also note what mood the mind is in. Does the mind feel jumpy, moving from one sensation or stimuli to another? Or does the mind feel very settled, relaxed? Is there a feeling of tiredness or excitation? Does it feel open, your awareness, or very tight and claustrophobic? Do you feel eager for something to happen? Or settled? So just scanning both the physical and the mental experience outside of thoughts going on right now. And then allow whatever now wants your attention, even if it's a thought, to arise. And in this meditation, what we're going to do is simply, as each thought, memory, or plan arises, just note how it affects or represents a shift in our emotional state. For example, A thought about a good experience might suddenly make the breath feel deeper, the stomach might relax, the mind might become brighter. A thought of something that we dread in the future might create a shallow breath, a tight belly, a mind that suddenly feels very thin and dark and without a lot of space. So instead of climbing into a thought, just allow the thought to arise and see how it affects 
what emotion it represents or what emotion it incites. And once you have that sense, stay with the feelings and let the thought go until the feelings subside and then allow another thought to come in. This practice is very, very powerful in reducing the tendency to over-identify with our thoughts and to see identity from an entirely different perspective.